so exciting to hear what happened at summer camp. I can't wait till my kids are old enough to go for multiple reasons. That would be nice. <laughs> no. Gotta love them. Um, so yeah, my name is Jen. I'm bringing the message this morning. If you have been coming here for a little while, you know that we've been doing a series on Matthew for like a very long time. Um, we're just taking our time going passage by passage through the book. Um, the series is called Following the King, but t- we are pausing that today and for the next four weeks, and we're going to have a few guest speakers bringing their own independent messages. Um, so since Van and Lori, our senior pastors, our founding pastors are on sabbatical, there's a lot of open preaching slots in the next few weeks. So I'm honored to bring the message this morning. We're going to have um, Jim Hunter bringing the message next week, which is awesome. It's going to be exciting. Then we're going to have Dustin Montgomery bringing a message and Micah Turnbow. So it'll be a fun few weeks while Van and Lori are away. Um, yeah, so we have that to look forward to. Yeah, so again, my name is Jen, and my title this morning is In Spirit and in Truth. So we're going to talk about worship. And this phrase, in spirit and in truth, is what Jesus uses to describe what true worship is in the New Testament. Um, so, yeah, what, kind of like my main point that I hope we can all come away from my message this morning is that worship has an inside and an outside. And what I think matters so much to Jesus is the inside. And that we wouldn't be caught up with what our worship looks like on the outside, but we would be reminded that our hearts are the starting place of our worship to God. And so we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at a few other passages in the Bible that talk about worship. So I I serve here on the worship team once a month. I've been on the worship team for a few years. And I'm so thankful for this church. We have an amazing worship culture. I just want to honor Tyler Brown for where he's led us in worship over the last few years. (laughs) He was our worship pastor for so long, and Luke Hazelmeyer recently took it over, and I want to honor him as well for doing an amazing job. And These two guys steward so much in this church, and have amazing hearts, and so I'm really thankful for them. And um, Yeah, we have an amazing worship culture. We love to worship passionately here, don't we? And I love it, and the atmosphere gets electrifying, and you feel God's presence, and that's also part of our vineyard DNA, like our vineyard roots as a vineyard church is we expect to feel God's presence when we give him worship, and it's, it's exciting, and it's intimate, and we love it. But I feel like when we arrive to corporate worship on Sunday, when we arrive here into the auditorium to gather together and sing songs to the Lord, a lot of us, we just come and we have different experiences. Like for me, and some of you young moms, you can relate to this, like sometimes I walk into this holy moment of worship on Sunday, I come late, and it's kind of like whiplashy because I was just running late with my kids and I'm impatient and then I like run to their classroom and try to drop them off so I don't miss worship. And, and then I come in here and I'm like, okay, how do I like engage now? And then I sit down in my seat and I'm like, oh wow, James sounds amazing on drums today. Or like, wow, like Matt is so precious on the keyboard and Luke's changing the chords over there. This is, they're so awesome. And okay, let's focus, let's focus. Um, 
So for me, that can be like disorienting, and maybe for you, you know, everyone comes to church in a different place and arrive here together and have different experiences. And worship is such a huge topic. You know, it's such a broad thing, and for those of us who are raised in the church, the word worship is used in a kind of specific way sometimes. You know, we call the musical time where we sing together and raise our hands, we call that worship, when rightly so, because it is. Um, there's a music genre these days, you know, the music, worship music industry. There's worship schools that you can go to and learn about spiritual things and just practical music stuff. Um, so the word worship is kind of like, for me, I find that I could easily get pigeonholed into the definition of what it means. And so today I want, and I feel like the Lord wants to remind us or maybe to explain to us for the first time that worship is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than the musical time where we raise our hands, when that is worship, but it's also so much bigger than that. And for us as Christians, it's a lifestyle and it's a heart posture and it's how we live our life toward God. And Jesus describes us in spirit and in truth. So we're gonna talk about that today. I had a funny story, speaking of worship. Um, this week, my kids went to the park with my husband and there's, you know, those like free book boxes, like the free libraries at different parks. Like any random person can put books in there and then you can just take one out for free. So they're, you know, a treasure trove of literature. No, they're not. They're just kind of random. <laughs> but my kids love getting a free book. So they picked out a book and it was like this random old um, Sesame Street book. And so they got home and we were snuggling on the couch to read it. And it's this book about Harry the monster and his family and, and they just, the, this older brother, Harry, is coping with this new baby in their family and he just became an older brother. And so we get to this picture. Isn't it so cute? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so we get to this part in the book where all the neighbors and friends are coming over to meet this adorable little baby and they're bringing all kinds of gifts. Like for some reason, someone brought a grandfather clock, I think, and um, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And they're surrounding this baby and taking pictures of him. And they're just swarming in. And so we get to this page and I have my kids next to me. And I'm like, oh guys, like look at Harry in the corner. He's over there. And I'm like, how do you think he feels? And you know, they're like sad. And, so I asked them, how come? How come you think you feel sad? And Haya, my six-year-old, goes, because they're all worshiping the baby. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, okay. And so I asked her, like, so what do you mean they're worshiping the baby? And she says, you know, they're all just paying attention to him and bringing him gifts and taking pictures of him and just focusing on him. And I didn't even correct her because I was like, that's, that's pretty good. Like, yeah, okay, let's just move on. Um, so just the idea of what worship is, is huge. You know, it's a, it's a huge topic. And so, so what is it? So here's a definition that I want to share with you guys. This was, is a definition from our preaching team here at Vineyard Northwest. Um, from last year, we did a small series on worship called Worshiping the King. And here's what we have. Worship is ascribing worth to God through action with a sincere heart. So those three main components, ascribing worth to God and action, and is connected to a sincere heart. So action, the reason why we have an action, because you can worship God in your heart, but through action is what, we've, what they found last year in the series, and you guys can go listen to it on the podcast website, is that so many times in the Bible, the word that's used for worship is an action word. 
It describes an action. So it's, it's, it's the internal heart state, that sincere heart toward God, expressed through an action as we're ascribing worth to God, as we're declaring how worthy he is and how highly exalted he is and all those things. It comes out in action from a sincere heart. So let me pray, and then, and then we'll dive into some passages. Oh, Jesus. God, Jesus. Jod? Sorry. (laughs) Jesus, we worship you. I give you this message this morning as worship, as an offering to you. And God, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I feel like, God, that you have freedom for some of us this morning to free our hearts to worship you. And I ask that you would um, just relieve any pressure to look a certain way when we worship and to feel disconnected from you. And I thank you that you're so accessible to us in worship. Yeah, and I pray that you would lead us to truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at John 4. This is John 4, and we're going to start in verse 19. This passage is the well-known story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. So a few interesting things about this story. He, Jesus and his disciples are traveling at this point, and they're making a stop in Samaria, which is interesting because most Jews would never make a stop in Samaria because they had so much disdain for the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were a group of people who, they kind of took different elements from religions and mixed them together. They took parts of the Jewish Bible, and then they discarded the rest, and kind of mixed things together in that way. So for that reason, the Jews really looked down upon the Samaritans and didn't want anything to do with them, didn't want to travel through their town. So the fact that Jesus is telling his group, we're going to stop in Samaria, is an interesting move and really demonstration of love. He's crossing some cultural barriers at this point. And then the fact that he's, so he's sitting at a well. He sends his disciples ahead of him to get some food. So he's the only one, he's just there waiting for them. I mean, I think he knows who he's going to meet and what's going to happen and what conversation's going to happen. But he's there at the well by himself, and a woman comes to draw water from the well. And so the fact that he strikes up a conversation with her is also another cultural barrier that he's crossing. So he asked her for a drink of water because she's drawing her water, and she's surprised. You know, she says, like, you're asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And his response is, well, if you would have known who I am, you would be asking me for a drink of water, and I would give you living water. So he's kind of slowly starting to reveal his identity as Messiah to her um, and throughout this whole conversation. So he says, I would give you living water. And then he begins to mention some things to her as he's speaking to her about her own personal history, about different pain that she's been through, the different men that she's been with, and her current situation where she's living with a man who she's not married to. And so these are things that only, only God would know about her. You know, to her, this is a stranger. How could he know these things? So she decides, like, okay, this is a prophet. He knows things about me from God. And so this is a a prophet, a spiritual man. I'm going to ask him this question. So this is where we pick up. She has this question that she, she asks Jesus. So this is verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, And yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. So she's saying, 
So the, the differences that I talked about already, the Samaritan worship and the Jews, Jewish worship, as she says here, the Jews would say, you have to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, their tradition was to worship on this mountain. And what I kind of hear her asking here is like, am I disqualified? Like, what's, there's a difference here in how we worship. Who's right? Am I wrong? Does my worship count? And Jesus responds to her, Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So what his response is kind of saying is that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, location is irrelevant for worship. That when the Holy Spirit is poured out, when he says a time is coming soon, when the Holy Spirit moves into a believer's heart, they become the temple. You don't need to go to a certain mountain. You don't need to go to a certain city to worship rightly, but it can start from the inside. And then he goes on in 23. But a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. I love that he just said, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's breaking down these barriers that she's kind of raised in, that I worship this way, they worship this way. He's saying people who worship in spirit and truth, just anybody, people who do this, such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. That there is accessible. True worship is accessible. And then 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he's contrasting her idea, her question of these external religious rites and trappings of how you worship versus when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it's about the internal, it's about starting from the worship from the inside and it being expressed outwardly. So let's look at some of these words that he uses, spirit and truth. I looked up some of these Greek words and the word that Jesus uses for spirit is pneuma, I think, P-N-E-U-M-A. And, and what that means is the rational spirit, the power by which a human being feels, thinks, wills, and decides. So what I think, what I kind of get from that is this whole internal place, this whole internal world in a human being. Jesus is saying, worship in spirit and in truth. Worship from a deep inward place and start from there. And then in truth, the Greek word for truth here is aletheia. And aletheia is translated in other places as unconcealedness, disclosure, and revealing. So in truth, it's like, in truth, it's all laid before him. Nothing is left off the table. Nothing is hidden. In truth is just like, here I am. I give it all. So in spirit, pneuma, this inner place, and in truth, giving it all, totally revealed, disclosed to God in intimacy, in spirit and in truth. This is what Jesus is talking about. So in this conversation, what Jesus is pointing to for true worship is stepping away from looking at this external behavior-minded worship and focusing on starting from a deep place inside because we're the temple now that the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're the temple. So the worship starts from in us and is expressed outwardly in an intimate way. 
So something that I notice in the Bible, like there's, when I look at different worship examples in the Bible, I see that it starts usually as a response to God. And that's true of so much in our relationship with God. You know, everything in our relationship with God is a response. You know, he created us. He initiated that, and we respond as his creation. He initiated salvation while we were in darkness, and we respond to that initiation. And the same is true with worship. Think of, like, the image of the elders. We kind of talked about that this morning. In heaven, in Revelation, they're staring at the glory of God, and they respond by throwing down their crowns. Starts as an inward response of the heart, and it leads to an outward expression of action. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 19:14. It says, may the words of my mouth, action, and the meditation of my heart, inside, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And there's other verses in the Bible that show these distinct categories of like inner and outer. And what I think Jesus is saying is we want it to be connected. In true worship, they should be connected. In Matthew 15, Jesus even calls out the Pharisees and religious teachers of the day because they're kind of giving him lip service in, his, in their worship. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So the, the true worship, inside, connected to the outside. Another thing that I notice in the Bible when we talk about and look at examples of worship is that there's this overarching theme of giving something to God when you come to worship him, whether that's intangible or tangible. But a lot of times in the Bible, it's tangible. So think of an example like the three kings who come to worship Jesus when he's born. You know, we know they brought something to him. They they studied or that somehow they knew that a king was born and they responded by coming, traveling, and they each bring him a gift. Something that I love about this picture is they each brought something different. And I think that's beautiful. And I, and I think that God created us to worship differently than the person next to us. And that there's freedom in that and that there's, that's what he wants. He doesn't want us to look to give the same gift as the person next to us because he wants us to give from our hearts. And the person next to us doesn't have our heart. So the, the three kings who give three different gifts, um, you think, oh yeah, the elders who give their crowns. And then the two examples that I want to look at a little closer is Mary, the story of Mary giving her alabaster jar to Jesus and the widow in the temple giving her two coins. Two things that I want to take away practically about worship is the first thing is we can cultivate that response, that responsive worship in our heart by practicing thankfulness. You know, thanking God for what he's done, big and small in our lives, for saving us, for dying on the cross for us, for healing my leg, for giving me my kids, for giving me my house, for blessing my family, all those things, cultivating just thankfulness in our hearts so that our responsive worship is activated. And then, so that's the first thing. And then number two is when we come to worship, ask yourself, what do I have to give God today? Can I give him something? Whether it's my pain or my dreams, whether it's, I'm gonna give you my focus right now and I'm in this atmosphere and I'm kind of distracted, but my focus is my, my offering to you this morning or um, all kinds of stuff. There's always something that we can give 
to God in our worship. So let's look at these two stories of women giving something to God. Matthew 26, starting in verse 6, this is the story of Mary. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume. And she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering the woman? For she has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. So the first thing that I notice about this passage is, if I'm being honest, if I was in this scene, I would feel so awkward. <laughs> I would feel so awkward eating, eating a meal and someone just busts in because they can't help themselves. And this extravagant, lavish act of worship to Jesus, she pours her, her perfume on him and other accounts say she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. And then the disciples, you know, their reaction is judgmental, saying that it was wasteful because it was such an expensive perfume, that it was wasteful and it was too much and it could have been used for something else. But what does Jesus do? He was pleased with her worship and he defends her. And I love what he says. He's, he points out to them, she got it right on so many levels. First, the prophetic timing of what she's doing was right on because he's about to die. And that the poor, you'll always have the poor. He says, don't worry about the poor. She's focusing on me. And then thirdly, he like, enshrines her in history because of this extravagant act of worship, which I love. Something that I love to think about is I just realized even this morning that this passage happens in the two-day window before he dies. Just before this, he tells his disciples, in two days on Passover, I'm going to be crucified. And so this happens, and she pours all of her perfume on him. And I just wonder, how long did that perfume stay on him, that scent? You know, he leaves dinner, and it's still on him. The disciples can smell it around him as they're walking around town. People behind him can smell it as they're walking around town. When he gets arrested, does he still smell it? Does he still smell his worship on her, her worship on him? When he's standing in trial, about to be crucified, does he smell her worship on him? When he's hanging on the cross, giving up his spirit, just imagine him smelling that perfume and reminded of her worship for him. It just shakes me. Like, I want to bless God's heart with my worship like that. It's beautiful. So we have Mary who gives this extravagant gift to Jesus, and some may say it was too much. Let's look at the widow on the other hand. This is Mark 12, 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So first of all, I just love the idea of Jesus sitting and watching 
all these offerings coming in the temple. And the thing is that he sees, you know, every gift, and he also sees the heart as they're giving it. That's why he's so impressed with the widow. He sees her context and her life and her heart, and he's amazed at what she gave. He's so amazed that he calls his disciples over and makes a teaching point out of her example of worship. Even though she only gave a little bit, he says she put in everything, and she gave more than all the others. So Jesus has a different scale for worship than I think we do. He weighs it differently. He's pleased with the alabaster jar. He's pleased with the two coins that are a few cents. And when I read the story of the widow, what's on my heart is those of us who come to church on Sunday to worship together, poor in spirit. Okay, I don't know if you guys, I've, I've experienced a season like that where I come to church poor in spirit and I walk into worship and sometimes it feels, it felt like nails on a chalkboard because there's joy in the room and there's excitement. And I think God's heart this morning is to free people who are in that poor in spirit place to be there. And that there is worship to give in that place that only you can give in that place, and that is pleasing to him. There's always something that we can give Jesus, whether we're over here or over here. No matter how we come to church in the morning or worshiping throughout the week, there is something that we can give to him. And there is no pressure to look a certain way. And I'm, and I'm, I love the passionate worship that we have in this church. And my heart this morning is for the people who come and feel like when the band starts, there's a disconnect for them. That there's like a canyon between where they're at and how they can engage with worship like the rest of the room. What I feel like the Lord wants to say to you is he sees you just like he saw the widow in the temple and that your offering of brokenness to him from a heart of worship is so pleasing to him. It's just as pleasing as the jar and the excitement in the room. So let me pray for you guys. Will you guys stand up? So Jesus, I thank you that you see us in every season. You see the inside and the outside. And right now, I just release my brothers and sisters in the room from a pressure to look a certain way. I thank you for freedom and worship. I thank you that you are not far away, God. That worship is accessible for everyone in the room. I thank you that no one is disqualified. And I just speak freedom in Jesus' name to hearts to worship in spirit and in truth. God, would you teach us to go into those deep places with you and to worship from that place? And would you make this a church that has freedom to worship you as an individual? Yeah, I break any lies that you're not giving enough or you're giving too little in your worship. And God, would you just break any behavioral mindsets, any performance mindsets that we might step into? 
And would you teach us to worship in spirit and in truth and free us to worship you freely because you're worthy, Jesus. You're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.